To me, it feels like only recently that people are starting to see prisons as a mainstream feminist issue. If you've only learned about prisons from, I don't know, say, the Hamburglar, I understand where you're coming from. You might see people in prison as all violent criminals and think that taking them out of society makes our country safer and stronger as a whole. But a lot of work has been done in the last 20 years to show how our justice system is not equal and is not making our country safer and stronger. If you care about making the world a more equitable place for people of color, for queer and trans people, for people with disabilities, then you've got to care about prisons. As Michelle Alexander spelled out in her landmark 2010 book, The New Jim Crow, mass incarceration is a stunningly comprehensive and well-disguised system of racialized social control. Systemic biases in our economy, our police forces, and our legal system work hand-in-hand to create our current dystopian reality where African Americans are incarcerated at about six times the rate of white people. Well, you can hear all the numbers you want, and I can certainly throw them at you, but they might just wash over you. Instead, what's really powerful is hearing an actual person's story. Hi, I'm Andrea James. I'm the founder and executive director of Families for Justice as Healing and also a founding member of the National Council for Incarcerated and Formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls. Andrea James's group, Families for Justice as Healing, focuses on raising public awareness about the impact mass incarceration has on women and kids. Andrea knows all about this impact. She's from Roxbury, a historically African-American neighborhood in Boston. And as a kid, she saw a lot of people around her get arrested as part of the war on drugs and get sent to prison. When she grew up, she started working as an attorney. She got married, had kids, and built a career as a criminal defense lawyer and real estate lawyer. That all changed in 2010. Uh, I was sent to prison um, in a matter relating to my real estate conveyance practice, and I was sentenced to a federal prison sentence for for, uh, 24 months uh, for wire fraud. And I just was stunned. I was stunned and heartbroken. You know, I had just, at 45, I went to prison. Andrea was sent to Danbury Women's Prison in Connecticut. You might have heard of it. Danbury is now famous as the setting for the show Orange is the New Black. Piper Kerman, the real woman who wrote the memoir about her time in prison that became the basis for that show, served 13 months in Danbury in 2004, a few years before Andrea was sent there. We'll talk more in a minute about what real women in Danbury think of the show, but for now, let's focus on Andrea's story. The hardest part about being sent to prison for Andrea was thinking about her kids. She had a 12-year-old daughter and a newborn baby. She had given birth just five months before her conviction. She was still breastfeeding her baby when she went to prison. People think when you send a woman to prison that everything gets better for everybody, and it's not true. Everything goes downhill. And regardless of, of what you think about that woman prior to her being incarcerated for whatever you think she should be in prison for, she shouldn't be in prison for it most times. And, and two, her children suffer even more uh, once she is away. Arriving at the prison was really scary and overwhelming. Andrea was put into a unit that mixed new arrivals in with women who had been in the prison for decades. Remember, Andrea was a criminal defense attorney. She knew the facts and figures about how prison worked. But being there in the middle of it was completely different. 
all kinds of things were going on in that space all day and night long. You know, women were detoxing, people were sick, uh, people were angry, they would bounce back because they had gotten in trouble and they didn't have their housing anymore. There were all kinds of things. There were new people like me who were scared to death and didn't know what was going on, and we would try to get the lay of the land, and everything sounded like a fight was breaking out, but once you get used to the the environment of the prison, you realize it's not what's happening. It's just that's the sounds of the prison. We can be criminal justice professionals all day long and still never have a clue of what it's really like. And so what struck me the most, what got me off of my bunk, because I was really, I think I was so depressed um, the, my, you know, giving birth, you know, I was 45, I had just given birth, I was still leaking, you know, my, my son hadn't completely uh, weaned from breastfeeding. You know, I mean, there was all these horrific things emotionally for me to go through. I just was a, a, a mess. Andrea and the women around her were eager to talk to their families on the outside, but that presented a problem. Here was the phone situation in Danbury's unit. The unit had four phones and 200 women. Even if you waited in line to make a call, you still had to be able to afford it. Each call cost anywhere from $3.50 to $5 and was capped at 15 minutes. That might not sound like too much of an expense, but it's huge for one phone call, especially given what the women were paid at their jobs in the prison. Incarcerated people are paid as low as 12 cents an hour, which adds up to about $8 a month. So think about that in phone calls. That's about two phone calls. If you can't get money from someone on the outside to help cover the cost, that 12 cents doesn't go very far at all. To mother from a payphone from inside of a prison was just the most heartbreaking thing that I had ever witnessed, even for myself. And I had so much more privilege and access than most of the women in that prison. But even for me, it was incredibly painful. There were often times that my, my daughter wouldn't be finished telling me something or, you know, I needed to have a discussion with, and she was just going into adolescence when I left and you know it was a difficult difficult time for her but when the phone cuts off the phone cuts off and it's you're done. Price gouging for prison phone calls is not limited to the prison where Andrea spent time. It's a national problem. The FCC found that some private companies were charging up to $14 a minute for prison phone calls. Loopholes allowed inmate calling service providers to tack on extra fees driving already expensive rates even higher. In August 2016 After years of pressure from reformers, the FCC finally laid down some new rules, saying that companies couldn't charge more than 21 cents a minute for federal prison phone calls to other states. So for Andrea, one 15-minute phone call home from Connecticut to Massachusetts across state lines would now cost $3.15. That's an improvement, sure, but still about 40% of your monthly wages if you make 12 cents an hour. Not only were they just thousands and thousands of miles from their children, they had not seen, and many of them had talked very little to their children five, six, seven years later. And the last time they laid their eyes on their children, they were looking out the back of a police or law enforcement vehicle during their arrest. This prison phone situation is just one example of the concrete realities of our prison system that weren't visible to Andrea as a person on the outside even as somebody who worked in criminal justice, who had a lot more contact with incarceration than most of us do. The reality of prison was still invisible to her. Those first few weeks were brutal. She struggled with depression, with missing her children all the time. Lying in her bunk one day, she noticed that her cellmate had some photos of her family. The photos were obviously well-loved. 
You weren't allowed to put pictures up on the wall, but her cellmate kept hers in a small locker. She opened up her door of her locker, and I saw pictures of her from, I could tell, that were frayed and yellow, and she was holding these little boys in her arms. And then I looked and saw this continuum of these pictures, and the boys got older, and then the very more recent pictures are, is the same woman in a visiting, in the visiting room, in her, you know, her, her prison, federal prison uh, clothing, and she was holding these babies again. And I said, my gosh, I said, who are, who, are these, who are these people? She said, well, those are my sons when I first came in here. And I said, well, who are these babies? She said, oh, those are my grandbabies. And I, it, I couldn't find the words. As a lawyer, Andrea knew about the lengths of sentences. She knew the facts about mandatory minimums that required judges to send people to prison for seven years, a decade, or sometimes life for drug crimes. But what being sentenced to 10 to 30 meant in human cost hadn't really hit her until she realized that this woman's little kids had grown up, lived their whole lives, and had their own kids, all while she was behind bars. Andrea talked about this a few days later with a woman named Joyce, who'd been incarcerated for a long time. They were eating in the prison cafeteria, and Andrea asked how to cope with missing her kids so much. And I said, my God, Joyce, how do you get through every day with being separated from your child? How did you last so up till five years now doing this? She said, you have to forget about your children. And it struck me as so, such cruelty. You know, um, we're supposed to have a constitution that precludes cruel and unusual punishment. But we're separating mothers from their children. And the only way that they can, you know, get through that sentence is to forget about their children. And that's exactly what we all did to, for, the, for the most part. We got up every day and did what we were told to do in that prison. And thinking of our children wasn't, we didn't do it. We didn't allow ourselves to do it because it would break a woman down. And on any given day, maybe it's in the chow home, maybe it's out in one of the, you know, the, the grounds crew, you know, doing cleaning somewhere, or a woman is mopping the bathroom floors, and she falls out in complete grief. And she's inconsolable, and we all know what it was. She just is overwhelmed. She may have been there a year, she could have been there 10 years. But every now and then it hits you as a woman and as a mother that you're away from your children. Those feelings are what made Andrea know that when she got out after 24 months, she couldn't go back to her regular life. She had to work to try to change the system. So that's, that's what really got me to see the other side of it, see the truth of the system, because people don't, they have no idea, the general public, what really goes on. And then you add all the other layers to it, the bad health care, the horrible conditions, living conditions, the sexual assaults, the dehumanizing treatment. Um, you know, you add all those layers to it, and it's just an incredibly uh, horrible, broken, dehumanizing, cruel, unjust system. 
On a hot summer day, Andrea and five other women sat around a table in the prison and talked it over. You know, we said, we're going to use our voices. We're going to, one, first create a more accurate portrait of who we are, who are incarcerated women, and then go and raise public awareness about, from our perspective, what are the policies that need to change? Think about how radical the name of that group is, Families for Justice as Healing. For Andrea, justice as healing means pushing for laws that will make society safer and healthier by sending fewer people to prison. And whenever you take the women and incarcerate them, particularly women who are mothers, for the most part, you're creating further harm because incarceration is the most, the most dehumanizing experience on the planet. And they've gained some attention. In 2015, Andrea's group won a prestigious Soros Foundation grant to fund her grassroots work. Right now, Families for Justice as Healing is advocating for a law in Massachusetts that would change how bail works. Poor people are the ones who can't afford to post bail, so they're the ones who wind up spending days, weeks, or months in jail awaiting their trials. 25% of the people who are incarcerated in the state are just awaiting trial. They haven't been found guilty or innocent yet at all. They just can't afford the bail to get out. Another law that Andrea's group is pushing for calls for community-based alternatives to prison for people who are the primary caretakers of their children. If it passes, judges would have to consider the human cost of separating families and putting those kids in the foster care system and could send more people to residential treatment facilities or put them on house arrest instead of sending them to prison if they have kids to take care of. So we are never going to get to any real answers that are really shaping good policy that makes our communities healthy and our families healthy and our children healthy and that we, you know, stop using prison as a default by if we continue to just incarcerate people. The group Families for Justice as Healing also works on getting the stories of incarcerated women into pop culture. They help women who are in prison write and publish their stories. They think it's really important to share those realities as media, to help humanize people who are incarcerated and make this situation visible to the mainstream. Andrea wrote a book herself about her experience in Danbury. It's called Upper Bunkies Unite. Of course, the biggest piece of pop culture to come out of Danbury is Orange is the New Black. Andrea says that the women she works with in the prison have mixed feelings about the Netflix show. They definitely support Piper Kermit's original memoir and the work that she's done for prison reform after its publication. But Andrea says that among the women she talks to who are in prison, they're worried the show is turning their cruel realities into comedy. Well, look, it's like a double-edged sword for us, right? Because we'll never think that, you know, you get to a point where it's all about entertainment and they want to keep their audience. Andrea says the entertainment value of the show and the money Netflix is certainly making off of it makes her uncomfortable. And of course, it was easier to get the show made at all because it's about a white woman, while most of the women in prison are women of color. But Orange is the New Black is also certainly doing what so much of our media fails to do, putting prison issues on the mainstream radar in a colossal way. It's made prisons visible to people who would otherwise probably not think about prisons. For women, particularly white women, college-age students and people who are going to be the social workers and the grad students of the future who still control the agencies and the nonprofits that are making decisions for us still, those women that are the majority of the viewers of a show like Orange is the New Black, it's raising awareness in the issue. So that's a good thing. You know, anytime we get to raise awareness, we have to do 
a better job at not allowing a show like Orange is the New Black to mute our voices, the real women who have had the real experience. What Andrea's worried is that people will sit back, watch the show, and sure, feel bad, but not work to change the system in any way. It's not enough for you to say, oh my God, that's terrible, we have to do something about it. Because if you're not doing something about it, we're, those of us who are in the majority of the people who are of the population who are incarcerated don't make up the majority in this country. So we need other people. We need white people, to, who, and, and many white people who consider themselves to be liberal and progressive, to really start to make demands to bring an end to mass incarceration in this country. And if you're not, but you get it, but you're not doing anything about it, you're being complicit. And when you're complicit, you're just as guilty as the people who are maliciously continuing a system like we have. That's Andrea James of Families for Justice's Healing. Her book is called Upper Bunkies Unite. Just as a quick shout out, Andrea wants everyone to know about a campaign called Can Do Clemency, a group that's pushing for President Obama to grant clemency to people serving time for federal nonviolent drug crime offenses. They're hoping Obama will undo some of the damage of the war on drugs by granting clemency to people before he leaves office. They have just a few months left and they have petitions you can sign. Look them up at candoclemency.com. <laughs>